Well, I've been gone for quite a while, so I'm going to take one moment to just refresh us and anyone who may uh, have missed a few of the studies in James. Pastor Austin has been so faithfully doing and wonderfully teaching to us. You know, in chapter 1, James introduces himself. And then he moves quickly into the subjects of the Word of God and obedience to God. I'll give you an example. He says in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Obedience to God and the Word of God. In chapter 2, he moves on to challenge his Hebrew brethren about brotherly love and not being partial. Some of you may remember that study, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, he takes... A second part in chapter 2 to continue and talk about the test of good works validating the confession of faith in the life of the believer. And if God has taken up residence in their heart, it will manifest itself or show itself by good works. James 2.18, some of you will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, it's the walk, not the talk. And I found this little side note very interesting that uh, the entire book of James has what we call 54 imperatives, if you're taking note today. An imperative in the Greek is a call to action has 54 imperatives out of 108 verses. That's an average of almost a, one call to action in every other verse. It's the walk, not the talk. But interestingly enough, in chapter 3, he moves right into the importance of the words of a professing Christian and how important the talk is. And he addresses the issue of the tongue not being able to be tamed. But he also answers that question left for the Hebrew brethren of, well, if it can't be tamed, what, what am I ever going to do? And he is basically saying in chapter 3 to them that if they, as followers of Christ, and we can apply this to ourselves, are seeking to control their tongue under the old system of the old covenant, then it is impossible because there's a new and living way. And that a man or a woman or a young person must first seek the wisdom that comes from above. The Bible tells us Jesus has been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and that the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit alone can bring the fruit of righteousness from the tongue. Can't do it under the old system. In the power of the Spirit, the tongue can be tamed. 
So we move now to chapter 4. And what's interesting about chapter 4, when I look at these chapters, I'm like, oh man, I should have taught last Sunday and let Austin take chapter 4. Because it is a mouthful of instruction, correction, rebuke. I mean, it's just like loaded. And so a question emerges. That old adage, you've heard it. How do you eat a biblical elephant? One little bite at a time. And so we're going to take one small bite this morning of the first 10 verses of James chapter 4. And I draw your attention to the first four verses of the chapter. Will you read it with me and follow along? James says, Where do wars and fights come from you? From among you, rather. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Stop right there. I've entitled this morning's message, A Life Dominated by Pleasure Itself, Its Consequences and Its Cures. Life dominated, dominated by pleasure itself, its consequences, and its cures. So you may want to get out a pen, take some notes on the back of your bulletin, because we're going to deal first with the consequences. Now, the idea and the word pleasure itself in the life of a Christian is an interesting subject. Did Christ save us? to give us license to please ourselves? That's a question. Did he say, I came that you may have pleasure and it more abundantly? No, he did not. In John 10.10, he said, I came that you may have what? Life and it more abundantly. The word pleasure appears in the Old Testament 39 times and it means actually a root word to breathe. In other words, pleasure in the Old Testament is as important or as it is rooted to the very breath of the human soul. And in the New Testament, it comes around 15 times and it's, our, um, it's Greek or armeric, americ, meaning is to think well of, pleasure, to think well of something. Now the point is, is that Scripture tells us that God has designed mankind to enjoy life and to enjoy certain pleasures. And this morning I'm going to give us three examples of those types of pleasures that God has created for mankind to enjoy. The first one that came to my mind as I was studying is the, the pleasure of food. How many of us don't love to eat? And the question again this morning might be, do you live to eat or eat to live? 
Remember in Genesis 1.29, the Lord said to Adam, he said, I have put all of the herbs of the field there for your pleasure for you to eat. But the reality is when the pleasure of food becomes the object of one's life and the pursuit, it now becomes harmful. Here's an infomercial for us. The average American consumes about three pounds of sugar a week. A century ago when heart disease and cancers were nearly as uncommon, uh, were nearly uncommon, the average was five pounds a year. Jesus on his uh, classic Sermon on the Mount said, is not life more than food? Kyle Altman in his book, God's at War, reminds us, there's a quote, there is nothing wrong with finding pleasure in a gift that the Lord has given us. But when we pursue pleasure for its own sake, it has a way of expanding beyond its borders. Paul reminded those in the city of Corinth. He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, the fact of the matter is that food is a gift from God. It's therefore our pleasure. But when the gift becomes more important to us than the giver, the gift is perverted and loses its intended value. A second example again this morning in our adult class would be sexual pleasure. And by that I mean the relationship between a husband and wife, a wife and husband. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The relationship sexually between a husband and wife, a wife and a husband, is a spiritual union. It was given as a gift so that those two, within the bounds of marriage, could enjoy the deepest of intimate pleasure with each other. Oh yes, it does produce children as well, but that's, that's not the sole reason God gave it. Otherwise, it would be mechanical. And it's not. It's a gift from God. But when a person in a sexual relationship outside of the bounds of marriage and sometimes, unfortunately, historically, even within the confines of the marriage relationship, comes to be consumed by the gift, it becomes perverted and loses its intended. A classic example of this in Scripture is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You may recall the account. David had a son named Amnon. And Amnon was a virile guy, young. And what he did is he casted his eye at his half-sister Tamar. And he had a choice at that moment says he looked at her and she was beautiful. He had a choice at that moment 
of what to do with that look, what to do with that glance. And what he chose to do was begin to obsess on it. He began to want Tamar and want her intimately, want her sexually. And so, as you recall the way the story goes, someone advised him, hey, just have her fix some food and bring it to you in your room. And so Amnon took that advice, manipulated Tamar to come into the room, and then we're told that he raped her. She begged him, please don't do this, please don't do this. And the scripture tells us that after this you know, event, which is a total perversion of what God intended the sexual relationship to be, we're told in scripture that Amnon hated her more than he loved her. Men, women, young people, it is a travesty to pervert the relationship that God has intended to be beautiful and a gift outside of the bounds of marriage. Within the bounds of marriage, it is beautiful and it is a gift. America in general, another infomercial, had become consumed with sexual lust. Images and uh, perversion on the internet and television. Here's some things if you want to take note. We spend more money on pornography in this country than country music, rock music, jazz music, and classical music put together. We spend more money on pornography, listen, this will get you, than pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. One year, we're told by the data keepers that it grossed more than NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox channels combined. But it's not just money. Marriages, families, lives are destroyed when someone becomes by, consumed by the gift, obsessed with it more than the giver. Yes, sexual intimacy is intended to be a gift between a husband and wife, a wife and a husband gift from God, but when the gift becomes more important than the giver, it becomes perverted and loses its intended value. Last example this morning, material things and possessions. You've heard the old adage, the one with the most toys wins. Many Americans, and not just us, others across the globe, and some Christians, probably no one in this room, have become consumed with what they possess in material goods, fashion, cars, their home, recreational things. Have you ever thought about the real meaning of, a, of an amusement park? I remember someone sharing with this, this with me years ago and I just went, it was one of those aha moments. Not that amusement parks within themselves are all bad, or that material things are all bad. No, get there in just a moment. But the real meaning of amusement park is the combination of two Greek words, a, against, and muse, to think. So when you go into an amusement park, they don't want you to think. 
You can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> when James uses the phrase adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy, an enemy of God? He's not talking about the physical act of adultery. He's talking about a spiritual act. He's employing the fact that God has often portrayed in Scripture as the husband and his people the bride. You go back to the Old Testament and you will find that often that he looks at uh, his people choosing to follow after a different God for the sake of pleasure as infidelity. Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Jeremiah 3.20, surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. And we find that in the New Testament, that parallel or that observation continues because Jesus is often referred to as the husband and the, the church, every one of us that calls ourselves a Christian and is born again, we're the bride. Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, therefore just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Revelation 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Oh, come Lord Jesus. And we want to be ready. So, for the believer, the place of material things and their position possession, if, it be, if one becomes consumed by what one has, and what one gets, and what one owns, and what one pursues after, it is equivalent in the heart of Almighty God as spiritual adultery or infidelity. There's no room, listen, there is no room in your heart for two gods. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. Now, let me relax for a moment and be clear. These things in of themselves, food, sexual relationship, material things, are, are not evil in of themselves. They're not bad of themselves. In fact, they are intended to be gifts from God. But listen, if anyone is being spoken to by the Word of God this morning, if the gift becomes more important than the giver, you have perverted the gift and it is losing its intended value in your life. What is the answer? What are we to do? A couple of verses 
It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is bringing every thought captive and obedient to Christ. I'll, I'll restate the point. Being a Christian in James's day, just as it is today, isn't some sort of constant, woe is me, nobody's seen the trouble I've seen, or go out and, you know, <clears throat> sell all, get rid of all, put on a monk outfit, and live somewhere. In it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your heart. James is talking about the heart to his Hebrew brethren who were dependent upon an old system of works to put them in a right position before God. And think about it for a moment where Scripture tells us that pleasure and joy come from. Oh, if you're taking note, please write these verses down. Pleasure and real joy, Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your pleasure. Pleasure alone. Psalm 103, 21. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you ministers of His who do His pleasure. Psalm 111, 2. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Do you have pleasure in the works of the Lord this morning? Do you study the works of the Lord? The scripture tells us that there, therein is a place to have pleasure. Psalm 147, 10 and 11, He who does not delight in the strength of the horse, he takes no pleasure in the legs of man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Powerful. It gives us a hint of what James is talking about here. A life dominated by the pursuit of pleasure itself. The consequences, he tells us in, in these verses here, he says, it sets people against each other. Verses 1 through 4. The cravings drive people to do shameful things. In the end, its cravings even shut the door to effective and intimate prayer. And lastly, its cravings set one at enmity with God. So let's talk about the cure. Or cures, plural. Because oftentimes when we find the Lord instructing us, excuse me, I'm sorry, that He often, when He brings truth to the front of, of what is going on and needs correcting, He always brings truth about how the correction can take place. Are you ready? Look with me at verse 5 through 10. It was our reading. 
Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, may I insert something here? Your laughter produced by the pursuit of pleasures itself be turned into mourning because those pursuits left you empty. And your joy to gloom, verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Just like there are four consequences to a life dominated by the pursuit of pleasure, there are four cures as well. The first one, we're told in verse 5, is if you're taking note, pay attention to what Scripture says. James is regarded as being one of the earliest writers of the New Testament. It's apparent that uh, his relationship existed with Paul and that Paul esteemed him highly in the Lord. <coughs> Acts 15.13, Acts 21.18, Galatians 1.19-9, and Josephus, one of the first century historians, first century, right within that first hundred years of, of the church being born and coming into existence, Josephus, as a historian, tells us that James was martyred around 62 AD. But as we read through the book of James, we find that there is no reference to the Jerusalem Council. You remember that council? It's, it's there in the book of Acts when all the brethren got together and they were trying to decide what to do about the Gentiles being saved. There's no reference to that in the book of James. And that council took place around 49 AD. So this letter was probably written somewhere between 45 and 48 AD. And another thing that's very interesting about verse 5 is if you'll notice, you can come through your uh, lexicons and your Bible search tools and everything. Listen, you won't find a verse that mirrors what James is saying right there. Why is that? The reason is very clear. is because he is compiling... A, a general truth that is arrived at by the whole <coughs> counsel of God. Now remember, they don't have the New Testament. He's writing it as we're reading it. So he's referring mostly to his Hebrew brethren who would have had only the Old Testament to go from. And since there is no quoted verse what James is saying, what we have to arrive at is that he is putting together the whole counsel of God, that God is jealous for his people. Exodus 20, verse 5, 
I am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24 The Lord is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Psalm 78.58 They provoked him to jealousy with their carvings and their images. Ezekiel 39.25 is a great one. God promises to bring his people back and I will be jealous for my holy name in their lives. Pay attention to what Scripture is saying to you in your life. It's the first cure against a life that would be dominated by the pursuit of pleasure itself. Secondly, gain a renewed submission to God. Verse 7, notice what he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And there's two parts mentioned there. One is to submit, the other is to resist. And so as we, you, you know what submission is, right? You've come this morning fully aware of what it means to submit to God. Well, just in case you haven't. Uh, a young child, young child, that is willful, and wanting to do what they want to do. Those of you who are parents this morning, maybe you understand what it means to demand that the child submit to you for their good, for their safety. Let's use a hot stove. And you have a little one that wants to touch that stove because they're curious. And it's for their safety that you say, no. That will hurt you. And if they insist they're willful, they're looking at you and they're going, what are you going to do about it? Well, we have a variety of parental experiences in this room, and I won't tell you what to do about it, but I'll tell you I know what I would do about it, and I would take their hand and go, I said no. And perhaps the don't ever spank your child. Parent might have things to say to me after today. I don't know. But when they're young, they need that formative understanding of what it means to submit to authority. And God is saying, I created you. I have a plan for your life. And that plan is for your good and to bring you to an expected end, Jeremiah. And so therefore, Submit to me. And at the same time, exercise a resistance to your adversary, the devil. In other words, exercise moving away from those things that are simply the pursuit of pleasure in and of itself for that pursuit. Third cure comes to us in verse 8 and 9. Change your mind about what or whom you will draw near to. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. He's not talking about going to the sink and using soap. He's saying the only cleaning agent for the believer is no longer the, the the baptismal rites of the Old Testament. 
It's no longer the washing of water. It is the cleansing blood of Jesus alone. Let Him wash those hands. Let Him cleanse you. You sinners. Oh my goodness. Do you think the Hebrew sitting there going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Me, a sinner? To which we would all say, yes. I am a sinner saved by grace. Change your mind about whom or what you're going to draw near to. What do you do when you're all alone? What do you spend your time on when you have free time? What do you, where do you choose to go on the internet if you're just looking? What do you pull up on your phones or Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, all those things? You see, if any of those things in and of themselves draw you away from God, change your mind about whom or what you will be drawing yourself to. I've getting really, really quiet in here. Because I would assume, as this speaks to me, you see, I can't bring to you anything that hasn't first like challenged me. And some of you may know that uh, Sherry and I both, we, our kids are grown, and so we have adult children, we have grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. And in our kids being out of our home, we both have hobbies, so to speak, that when your children are grown and gone, you'll understand if they're not grown and gone. So we, Sherry retired three years ago, two years ago, and she has a quilting business and a beautiful room with a quilting machine and everything. Uh, I'm not retired, but I'm a musician, have been for years, and so I have a little studio in one of the bedrooms. And lately I've been studying orchestration and, and various things. And just even more recently, I had to ask myself the question, why? Why am I studying orchestration? I gotta tell you, over the last year or so I've envisioned, well, maybe I could learn to do mock-ups and send them to an orchestra and it could become the background music for a Kenix Brother Christian movie. Facing the Giants, uh, Courageous, you know those guys? Well, then I thought, well, no, you got to take steps. So you, you might have to do something. And I started looking at it on the internet and looking up, you know, um, orchestrating for film and for commercials and that sort of thing. And, and I talked to, even talked to somebody who has a program and a class for, you know, X amount of dollars that can train you to do this. And he was telling me, well, you know, it's not just orchestrating by itself. You could do sports commercials, because I told him I'm not going to do anything that doesn't glorify God. Well, you can do sports commercials. You know who Brian Gumpel is. I did something for him, and on and on and on. And all of a sudden it hit me. Boom. No. I told the Lord 
30 plus years ago when he delivered me that I'm not picking up an instrument or doing anything on that instrument that won't clearly glorify him. And I'm back to moving away from something that draws me away from the Lord to something that draws me to the Lord. The most recent thing I'm working on is an orchestration of It Is Well With My Soul. And I've got to tell you, it brings me such joy than just trying to pound something out for the sake of pounding something out. I'm just trying to share with you how these things that we're talking about this morning, I'm not just sharing them with you for you to know. It's, it's for you and I to know. So, pay attention to what Scripture is saying to you. Have a, gain a renewed submission to God and exercise resistance. Change your mind about whom or what you're going to draw near to. Last cure. And certainly not the least. Verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up. <coughs> Humility is the key. Recognizing that I need greater humility in my life. You need greater humility in your life as a cure to the possibility and the draw of seeking pleasures for the sake of pleasures themselves. What is humility? Humility is strength under control. It doesn't mean that you have to be uh, meek also means strength under control. doesn't mean that you have to just be stepped on and walked on because, oh, I'm humble, you know, or I'm meek. No, it's strength, the strength of God under control in our lives. And so I close this morning with reminding us of the consequences and the cures. For a life that has been or is in danger of being dominated by the pursuit of pleasure itself first. It will set you against others. The craving for it will drive you to shameful deeds. In the end, its craving will even shut the door to effective and fervent prayer. And his cravings will set you at enmity with God and cause you to think gleefully about being a friend of the world. Contrarywise, the cure to that is again paying attention to Scripture, renewing yourself in submission to God. Asking the Spirit of God to change our mind about what we draw near to or whom we draw near to and finally seeking God for a greater sense of humility. Will you pray with me as we close? Precious Lord, these are things that were spoken thousands of years ago by your servant James to a believing audience that wanted to know 
how to walk with God. We wanted to know how to serve God. To whom he was instructing many things about their walk versus their talk, their obedience to the word. And why as they would look around that there's so much war and fighting an internal conflict even amongst themselves and he brings it very clearly to us that the real reason is can be a life that's dominated by the pursuit of pleasure for the sake of pleasure itself so he sets before us Lord those dangers and he gives to us very clearly those cures and I ask Lord for us as your church this morning and as we have spent this time in front of your word and in your presence and you would now take this word and cause it to be applied in each of our lives for your glory and we ask it now in Jesus name and everyone said Amen, Amen.